The cross, of course, is a universal symbol of Christianity. Uh, I sometimes wear one around my neck. We have it displayed in our houses, and today we have it very prominent on our stage. But if you think about it, the cross is an, is an implement of capital punishment. It, it's sort of peculiar. It's almost as if we would elevate an electric chair in today's terms, or a gurney, or a hangman's noose. So why, why do we talk so much about the cross? Well, we know, of course, the reason for that is that our Lord, our King, was crucified on a cross. In Matthew 27, the crowd that hated him cried out, nail him to a cross. And Pilate, of course, the Roman governor who had some sense of decency, although he didn't care a whole lot for anybody too much, certainly not the Jews, but he still just had a hard time condemning an innocent man to death. Pilate objected, for what crime? And they didn't answer the question. They just said, nail him to a cross. I, I know what we're like. It's a beautiful spring morning. When we go to church or when we do anything in life, we like for it to be pleasant. And the last thing that you want to hear this morning is about how somebody dies a very difficult death. But all our hope is tied up in it. All our hope is tied up in it. Because you can do everything right in this life. You can be the smartest person in the room. You can make the most money, drive the best cars, take the best vacations, live in the finest homes. You can have the finest career. You can be top of your profession and miss Jesus Christ. And there would only be one word to sum up your life, and that would be disaster. On the other hand, you could have everything go wrong in this life. Your body might not be what most people's body is. And, and you might have friendships and relationships that break up, and you may have heartbreak after heartbreak and health problem. But if you know Jesus Christ, in five seconds after you die, like Lazarus in, in, the, in the book of Luke, if you're escorted by angelic limousine to heaven, there's only one word that can sum up your life, and that is glory. With the cross being what stands in between, I think we ought to take a few moments this morning and do what is difficult for us. I think we ought to take a moment to look at what Jesus did for us on the cross. What was crucifixion? What was it like? Well, back in the day, it was called Cicero. The Roman statesman called it the most cruel and disgusting penalty the most extreme penalty. In fact, most cultures saved crucifixion only for conquered peoples and slaves. It was a form of terrorism. It was a way that governments got people to comply. It was such a horrific death that all people had to do was see a crucifixion and they were ready to go along. It wasn't like a firing squad or it wasn't like beheading, something that happened quickly. It was, as Cicero said, the most extreme penalty. Josephus, Lord knows he saw enough crucifixions. The Jew Jewish historian called it the most wretched of all deaths. If you read literature, you'll discover that it's called the most obscene, the most disgraceful, the most horrific form of execution. The, the purpose the, what was behind crucifixion, the main thing, was to expose the victim to the utmost indignity. Seneca wrote, and I'm quoting, some have their victims with head down to the ground, some impale their private parts, others stretch out their arms on the gibbet. First would come the 
whipping or the scourging. You will recall that Pilate was in the hopes of assuaging the bloodthirst of the crowd by having Jesus whipped. He had hoped that he would brutalize Jesus in the whipping and the people would say, okay, that, that's okay. And, and even though Jesus would, would be destroyed, basically, his body, he would live. And Pilate felt that he could salve his conscience that way and he had Jesus whipped. Well, that's what would happen before crucifixion. History tells us it was done usually by two soldiers. They would take turns. One would strike, another was he, as, as the first after striking would raise the whip, the other would bring the whip down again. It was a short whip that had several leather thongs made of different leaks. And tied in the ends of those leather thongs were small iron balls and sharp pieces of sheep bone. The victim was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied above him to a post. The back, the leg, and the buttocks would then be flogged until the person collapsed unconscious. With the back and the legs torn open that way, there would be extensive blood loss. The flogging, the, the, the severity of the flogging would often determine how long a person would live on the cross. Some historians tell us that there were people that did not survive the flogging. And for Jesus to have collapsed under the weight of the cross, his flogging must have been extremely severe. And after the beating, the condemned man was made to carry his, his cross. We, we see pictures, I think, that are somewhat flawed because we see the, the idea of Jesus carrying the entire cross. That would not have been the case because the entire cross, cross would have weighed about 300 pounds. But what they were forced to carry was the cross beam. It was strapped across the shoulders, shoulders of course, which by now have been torn open by the flogging. When the victim reached the place of execution by law, he was given a drink of wine mixed with gall. This was intended to be a mild narcotic to numb some of the pain, but you will recall after reading the story of Jesus' crucifixion that he refused, refused that. When they would get to the place of crucifixion, the, the victim was stripped naked, thrown to the ground on his back with his arms outstretched along the crossbeam. And then the hands would be nailed to the crossbeam. Again, historians tell us that at that moment, even though the victims had often suffered a great deal of blood loss from the whipping, their understanding what they were in for would cause them to have an extreme reaction of adrenaline. And sometimes it would take three and four soldiers to hold a man's arms down so they could nail his hands to the cross. Once the hands were nailed to the crossbeam, cross would be hoisted up, the cross beam would be hoisted up on the vertical beam, and finally the feet were nailed, one on top of the other. We don't have it on our cross, but jutting out from the cross was a small block of wood. The Romans wanted to extend the punishment as long as possible. You see, the, the way a person would eventually die on a cross was by asphyxiation. As a person would hang, the head would come down into the chest cavity and cut off the air supply. And a person would have to pull up against the hand nails and push off against the foot nail in order to get a breath. And that's how life would be extended. Well, the Romans understood after a few tries at crucifixion, if there was nothing to hold the body up, the body would just instantly sink and the person would die pretty quickly. So they, they hoisted a, a, a small, or they put a small seat there, nailed a small seat to the, to the cross and can take what Seneca said a few moments ago and understand how a person was kept in place on the cross. Sometimes, as an act of mercy, 
or in haste, as we see in the story of Jesus, the legs of victims would be broken because if the legs were broken, they could not get a breath. And in the case of Jesus' crucifixion, you remember that it was getting very close to the, to the Passover, and they wanted to get the bodies off the cross, and they broke the legs of the victims so that they died, but Jesus, Jesus of course, was already dead. If what I've said to you this morning sounds awful, you need to know that I've been extraordinarily euphemistic with you. If any of you watched The Passion of the Christ, the movie from 2004, and you saw the horrific treatment of a person and you said, surely not, you need to know that even The Passion of the Christ was genteel. It was, as the ancient writers tell us, the most disgraceful, the most agonizing execution known to mankind. And that is how your Savior died. And not only did he die the horrors of physical destruction, but the Bible says that the Father, God, made his soul an offering for sin so that while he was on the cross, he was bearing all the guilt of the world, all the shame of the world, all the pain of mankind. No wonder his heart exploded. After an all-night trial, he was flogged, forced to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. At 9 o'clock in the morning on that Friday, they hoisted him up on the cross, and for six hours he hung there. But about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we re- what we read occurs. John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. For this Palm Sunday, in red letters, I believe easily one of the eight greatest statements Jesus ever made, if not the greatest itself. Jesus said, it is finished. In English, it's three words. In Greek, just one, tetelestai. In in, back in Bible days, if an artist was finishing a portrait, he might put the last brush stroke on a painting. And when that brush stroke was in place, he would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. If a person was running a marathon, when they crossed the tape, they would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And that is, it's interesting to me that when Jesus reached the end of that six hours of dying on the cross, that's what he said, it is finished, Tetelestai. I don't, I don't pretend to know everything that he meant with that one-word statement, but I want to take you through three things that I know he meant, and then we'll be through with today's service. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had made good on the last of God's promises concerning a Savior. You need to understand that the Bible is an extraordinary book. There are all kinds of promises and prophecies that God made, and from the first time our parents sinned, Adam and Eve, when they broke God's law and became sinners, and human race fell, and we knew the dark side. From the very beginning, God wanted it known that he was going to make a way for us to go to heaven. He was going to make a way for flawed, imperfect, sinful people who were separated from God because of their conduct. Well, let's just use the pronoun, our conduct. 
God let it, know, let it be known from the very beginning that he was going to send a Savior into the world. The first person to ever speak that was God the Father himself in Genesis 3.15 when he said it would be the seed of the woman. And after that, there were scores of promises. I mean, 4,000 years between the first time God said there would be a Savior and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And all during that 4,000 years, God had prophets make specific promises about Jesus that he would be from the tribe of Judah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, you know, that he would be in and out of Egypt, and, and on and on and on it goes. Last week, we saw Micah 5, 2, that he would be the healer. Scores of specific promises about Jesus. And when Jesus came into our world, he fulfilled every one of them. But as he came to that 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the cross, he realized he was, his tongue was was sticking to the roof of his mouth. And he realized he had gotten to the very last one, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, that his tongue would cleave to the roof of his mouth. And, and it's interesting that the word tetelestai, it is completed, is also the same word in verse 28 when Jesus said, knowing that it was all now completed, knowing that he had fulfilled every promise that God made because his, he was thirsty, he said, it is finished. Why is that important? Why is that important that Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies? Well, let me give you a, a ridiculous illustration. Suppose I said, I see the Green Bay Packers winning the 2011 Super Bowl. Well, you say, well, Mark, so did 111 million other Americans. That's already happened. You'd laugh at me. That's no prophecy. But suppose a thousand years ago I was a prophet and I said, someday there's going to be a nation called the United States of America, and it's going to be sports crazed. <laughs> and, 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 and there's going to be this game. 22 men are going to fight over a bag of, they're going to fight over a bag of zipped up air. It's called football. And they will actually pay guys for playing that game someday. Boy, will they play guys, pay guys for playing that game. And, 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 and on top of that, someday there's going to be a league with 32 teams, and they're going to play a game at the end of the season to determine who is the winner. And in the year 2011, there is a team from a little town called Green Bay, Wisconsin, and they're going to win the Super Bowl. If I had said that 1,000 years ago, that'd be significant, wouldn't it? You would know that that's supernatural. That would not be, that could not be explained by coincidence. And when you look at all the prophecies concerning Jesus, that's supernatural. See, for Jesus to fulfill all the prophecies, what does that point to? It points to he's God because he made these prophecies. Jesus, he's the one. There could be others of us who could claim to be the Messiah, but we would not fit the criteria. We have not kept God's promises. Jesus was the one who fulfilled every one of God's promises. And I just love this moment where Jesus is on the cross and the moment that his tongue is sticking to the roof of his mouth, that's the last, that's the last one. That's Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. Jesus said, it's finished. I'm out of here. I love that. Why that's important to me is that I know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. And secondary to that, I know that God will keep his promises to me because he always keeps his promises. Secondly, when Jesus said, it is finished, it means that he had ended his journey to the earth triumphantly. Notice that Jesus did not say, I am finished, because he wasn't finished. He said, it is finished. What he was saying is, the job that I came into the world to do is over. It's finished. I have done what my Father sent me to do. Remember this. Oh, I, I don't have time to go on this side trail, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? I'll just talk fast to make up for it in the rest of the sermon. Back in the Old Testament, God 
allowed a couple to go a lot of years without having a baby, and he had promised to make them the parents of many nations. And it's kind of hard to be the father of many nations when you're 100 years old and you don't have any kids. But you know it was Abraham and Sarah, the couple, and finally God gave them Isaac. And when Isaac was a teenager, remember God came to Abraham one day and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham took Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah, and there was an altar, and, and Abraham didn't, didn't know what God was up to, what God was going to do, but he, he knew that God had given him Isaac. And the New Testament tells us that Abraham believed that if God allowed Isaac to die, that God would bring, bring him back to life. That's how much he believed in God. But you will remember the story how that Isaac was strapped to the altar, and as soon as he was there, God said to Abraham, Abraham, stop. I don't want you to go any further. I don't want human sacrifice. Get Isaac up. I just wanted to make a point. And he said, you will notice over in the thicket there is a ram. Offer the ram instead of Isaac. But there's a, there's a statement that Abraham made to Isaac that is really important to us at this point. When, when Abraham and Isaac were going up the hill to offer sacrifice, no doubt they'd done that many times before, Isaac said, Dad, I don't get it. We've got the wood. We've got the coals. We've got everything but the sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said this to Isaac, my son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. That is exactly what happened when Jesus came into our world. God realized that, I mean, he knew from the beginning that no human being could be a sacrifice. He had to give himself, God himself, Jesus, God and human at the same time, came into our world, and he lived 33 years of perfect life. Then he died on the cross, and when he finished providing the sacrifice for us, Jesus said, it is finished. He had finished the job that God had called him to do. Let me read this to you from John 10, verse 15. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Who killed Jesus? It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't us. He laid down his life. He said, no one can take it from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up again. So, what did Jesus mean when he said it's finished? Well, all of God's promises had come true. He had fulfilled every one. He had run the table. He had done the job that God asked him to do. He had finished triumphantly. And here's the big one, and I'll be through. When Jesus said, it is finished, the price had been paid. How many of you have read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you get over there and you start reading about sacrifices? In fact, you don't have to go very far because the very first two boys, Cain and Abel, brought an offering to God. Cain didn't want to bring a sacrifice. He brought the fruit of the ground, the work of his own hands, and Abel brought a sacrifice. So from the very beginning of time, you get into sacrifices. You go into the Day of Atonement, and on the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice a lamb, and the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat to make an atonement for the people. All kinds of sacrifices. What's the deal with sacrifice? There, here's the thing we need, and it may be a challenge for us in our Western way of thinking, but there, to God, there is a logic. And if it's logical to God, then it's logical. Isaiah 55 says he doesn't think the way we think. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But God is a God of perfect justice and perfect holiness. Now, think with me. 
Throughout Scripture, Scripture tells us that sin brings death. There is a nexus between sin and death. Romans chapter 5 spells this out. But now here's, in fact, remember when, when God was talking to Adam, he said the day you eat of the tree, you're going to die. Here's our problem with the idea of death. When we think about death, we think about our experience with it, which is physical death. And it looks like the cosmic stop sign. When people die, they stop. So we read in the Bible, sin brings death, and we think, oh, Adam and Eve are going to kill over, but they didn't kill over. The Greek word for death is thanatos, and it doesn't mean stop. It means separation. There are three kinds of death, folks, in the Bible. The first kind of death is physical death. When you die physically, your body separates from your soul and spirit. Your soul and spirit go on into eternity, and your body goes back to the dust. That's a separation. There is spiritual death. You can be spiritually dead here today. You are physically alive, but you're separated from God. You, your, your sins are separated from you from God. You've never had a connection with God. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. Eternal death is when a person is separated for eternity from God. So sin brings death. What must occur for a person to go on? Somehow life must be given for death. Now with that in mind, I want to read to you Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The Bible says the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. See, that's the whole idea with sacrifice. There must be a life given for death. Where sin is, there is death. But in God's perfect justice, there must be life given for death. But there's only one problem with all the sacrifices. It was like putting it on plastic. When the people came year in and year out and they brought the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, or other days when there was a sacrifice, it was just their way of being obedient to God. See, Jesus had not come yet. Let me, let, let me put it to you this way. In John chapter 1, when John was baptizing one day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said something in John chapter 1, verse 29. He said, look, there is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Up until that time, there were lambs that had been slain, but they had never taken away sin. They just rolled it forward. They just put it on plastic. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10 and, and several verses here because it really has a way of saying it to us. The law, that's the old system from the Old Testament, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and they would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because, Hebrews 10, 4, one of the biggest verses in the Bible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It was an act of obedience. It rolled it forward. It put it on plastic. But all those sacrifices of, of, of a million lambs, the blood that was put over the doorpost before the Passover, all the animals that were sacrifices, they could not take away sin. 
In verse 11, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. If you've ever studied the tabernacle or the temple, there's a lot of furniture in there. There's candles and tables and all kinds of furniture. There's one piece of furniture that's not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, and that's a chair. Priest never sat down because his work was never done. Sin was never paid for. Read that one more time. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. That's a quotation from Psalm 2. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He didn't just put the sin on the credit card. He took it away. He paid for it. And then he sat down. Why? Because Tetelestai, it was finished. <laughs> My favorite verse is Colossians 2.14. In fact, I have some Bibles where my name is embossed in gold on a leather cover, and right under my name I've got Colossians 2.14 because it's my favorite verse. A few moments ago, I was talking to you about crucifixion, and one thing I left out that I should have told you is that when the condemned man was carrying the crossbeam through the city, the Roman soldier would carry a placard. It would be just maybe a piece of parchment or a piece of wood or whatever. And it, it would either have a, a rope around it or it would have a nail through it. But as the condemned man was carrying his cross through the city, the Roman soldier, the centurion, would put the placard around the victim's neck. And then when they got to the place of the crucifixion, that sign would be nailed up to the top of the cross. And on that placard would be the crime. It would be like a bill. Like, like if you walked past the crucifixion and you didn't know what was going on, you saw a man being crucified, you saw a, a placard, you, you would know that guy's paying the price for rape or he's paying the price for murder, or he's paying the price for insurrection. And the reason why the Romans did this is they believed in justice. And when the man finally died, they would take the sign off the cross to say that the price for that crime has been paid for. The, the debt that was owed Rome had been paid in full. What was on Jesus' cross? What was the sign over Jesus' head? Some of us have seen artwork that there is a sign over Jesus' head. There, 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 what, what's on the sign? Four letters, right? I-N-R-I. You ever wonder what that is? What's N-R-I? Those are unseals. Those are, the first, those are the first letters of words in Latin. Remember, Pilate didn't know what to put on Jesus' cross. What, do you, what, 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 kind of, what kind of bill do you put on the cross of an innocent man? Pilate said, I don't find any fault in him. How am I going to put a sign over him? And, and that I N R I again, there's no I, it's the I's or J's. Those are first letters of words that stand for Jesus of Nazareth, R, Rex, Latin for king, king of the Jews. But my favorite verse tells us what was really over Jesus' cross. Remember, who put Jesus on the cross? It wasn't the Romans. 
They, they couldn't determine what the bill was. It wasn't the Jews. They couldn't determine what the bill was. The, the one who put Jesus on the cross was God. And it was God who decided what was on Jesus' cross. Do you know what was on Jesus' cross? Before we read verse 14, let's read verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, remember separated from God, dead, thanatos, separation. When you were dead in your sins and your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to his cross. Have you ever opened the Bible to read it, only to find it condemn you? I have. I open the scriptures and I find things that I've done wrong. And I read right there in black and white where God says, this is wrong. This is something that is worthy of death. The pride that is in my heart, the, the anger sometimes that is there. I open the scriptures and there it is. And it can, have you ever read the scriptures and there it, it condemns you? Maybe you open it and you find something very horrible that you've done and it's just there and you want to recoil from it. You said, it's in the Bible. I've done wrong. <laughs> All of us. In fact, the Bible says that written code, that law, it is opposed to us. It is against us. And yet what happened was when Jesus died on the cross, the way God looked at it, Jesus was paying the price for our sins to satisfy God's word that stood against us. He paid the price for it so that when they took his body off the cross and took the sign down, it was paid in full. And that is how in verse 13, the Bible says he forgave us all our sins because Jesus paid the price for it on the cross. And when he said, Tetelestai, it was finished and there was nothing more to do. It's finished. Now, I got nine minutes. I want to deal with something today. As a, as a believer in Jesus and as a pastor, there's something that just eats me up. When I open the Bible, it tells me that I am saved by God's grace alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. I talk to people about their relationship with God, and many times they will start off by saying, oh, I, I know I am going to heaven because God has forgiven me. And, and you know, I'm a pretty good person. Or you know, I was baptized, or I belong to a church. What we must understand is when Jesus said, Tetelestai, it was finished. You don't add anything to grace. It is the ultimate flipping God off for us to add anything to it. In fact, when we do add anything to it, we break the deal. <laughs> See? We don't understand how feeble any attempt that we can make to add to the cross is. Where's the Mona Lisa? Is it in the Louvre? If I went over to the Louvre with a Sharpie, and I said, I just think there's some stuff missing here on the Mona Lisa, I need to add to it, I'm going to, I'm going to find out what the inside of a French jail looks like. You just don't add to the Mona Lisa. It's finished. Tate Tullis died. <laughs> oh. Suppose... You um, go out to your mailbox, and there's a beautifully embossed envelope. And you open it up, and you discover 
that through some extraordinary set of circumstances, you've been invited to Buckingham Palace to a banquet before William and Kate's wedding. And you look forward to it. And guys, you know, you, you, you try to learn what's the, kind of right, what's the right kind of suit to wear, and you either buy one or rent, or rent one. All guys would rent one, that's right. And you ladies, I know what you would do. You would, like, borrow against the next five years' salary, and you'd get a designer gown. And, and can you imagine what it would be like to, to walk in, you know, for the banquet for William and Kate at Buckingham Palace? Man, you walk into this gilded palace, and it's magnificent. There is this beautiful edifice that's been here for hundreds of years that's had impeccable care. And then there's beautiful silks and brocades. And on top of that, they're the most festive decorations up for this wonderful banquet. And then you go into the hall where the dinner is going to be, and here are these beautiful tables and with, with linen and lace, and the orchestras are playing and music like you've never heard before. It's just great. And, and you sort of like kind of walk back to the kitchen and you smell all these wonderful dishes, and there they are. There's the prime rib and the lobster and the chocolate cake and potato salad. All my favorites are there. But you insist on talking to the governor of the banquet. And when you, when you get him alone, you say, uh, you and I need to talk about something. You know, I, I've been invited to this banquet, and it's just, man, this is really beautiful and stuff. But I, I just got to thinking that I, I really need to do my part. You know, I mean, I've been invited, and I just want to pull my own load here. So uh, before I, I went by the, the store, before the banquet, I went by the store. And, and so I brought some bean dip here. Where would you like for me to put this? <laughs> Probably not be a good question to ask. <laughs> and I was looking at the meat over there, you know, and, and it was really nice, the prime rib, the, the lobster, all the steaks, those are really good. But, you know, um, over where I'm from, we have, a, we have a special meat that I just think is perfect for this, and I brought it here today. I, I've, I've got some, some spam, and I, I just think you need to add this. Or, you know, I just didn't know what you were going to serve for vegetables here, so I just I brought, I, I brought what you have to have at a banquet. Now, about that time, a bunch of guys are going to surround you with headpieces. And somebody's going to make very clear to you in unspoken, no uncertain terms, that you fully misunderstood the nature of this engagement. That everything at this banquet is provided for the by the bounty of the crown. And there is nothing that you can add or even should try to add. And at that moment, you will be sent out to the curb to sit there with your pork and beans, your bean dip, and your spam. <laughs> None of us would do that. And yet some of us are doing something far worse. Bible says it's finished. We're sinners. We can't do anything to get into heaven. We, it's all grace. God has forgiven us. Jesus paid for it on the cross. It hung over his head. All the things that condemned us, the sins that we've committed. And Jesus finished it. It's finished. And God has invited week one. God has invited us to come. Come, bring all your dysfunction, bring all your sin, bring the divorces, bring the abortions, bring the adultery, bring the lying, bring the theft, bring the guilt, bring the shame. Come just like you are. 
And we come, but we say, well, I will come and I will take Jesus. But I just have been taught since I was a kid that I've got to bring the bean dip of my baptism. I think you have to be baptized. Deal breaker. Deal breaker. You say, Mark, are you serious? Does that break the deal? Are you kidding me? After God put his son on the cross, after God, I mean, after God, you, what do you think? What do you think your water, the water that you were baptized in, how does that compare to the blood that flowed out of the veins of the Son of God? You want to equate that? You better know it breaks the deal. It screws up grace. Oh, you say, I was always taught that you got to have a church. And my, now my church was kind of like spam. I went to this one, I went to that one. I don't really know what it was. <laughs> Tasted like God, I guess. <laughs> Break the deal. Oh, I've got to be a good person. I got the big can of pork and beans because you got lots of good works, right? Got to be a good person. You see, stuff like this, it, it doesn't stack up very well against the cross, does it? My advice today is just cast all that aside. It's a good thing to go to church if you are a Christ follower. It's a good thing to be baptized if you have accepted Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to do good works if you know Jesus, but none of those things get you in the door. Only Jesus, tetelestai, Jesus said, it is finished. Take your Sharpie, put it back in your pocket, don't add anything to the masterpiece, just fall at the feet of Jesus and accept his gift, right? That's what it means. Okay, I'm already in overtime. It could be that you're here today and you, for the first time you're saying, Mark, I never, I never knew. I, nobody ever told me. I, I was told just the opposite. I was told the pork and bean story. I was told the spam story. Well, what better day? Man, we're celebrating the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the Sunday before his crucifixion. What better day to invite him into your heart and life? And by faith, go back 2,000 years nearly and see the Son of God on the cross dying for you and realize it's all him and you invite him into your life. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that just call out to Jesus. He's not on the cross, by the way. Three days later, he's, he's resurrected. He's in heaven. He's got one foot out of heaven getting ready to come back. So if you want to invite him into your life, you can do that, okay? I'm going to pray. I'll pray it slowly. It's not the words that matter. What matters is the big yes that's in your heart right now. Okay, let's pray. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you paid for all my sins. And today I come just like I am. I bring the mess that I am to you because you know what to do. I believe your blood paid for my sins. I believe you arose from the grave. Today I receive you as my savior and my king. Come into my life and forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen.